Our scripture text is printed in the worship guide. That's always for your benefit. Hopefully sometimes you will turn ahead and read that scripture prior to the message. And so this morning we look at John's gospel chapter 12 and here's what the scripture says. Jesus, therefore six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. I have been preaching for almost 40 years. Now I started when I was five years old, so you do the math. (laughs) I say that to lighten the moment and be humorous, but it's true. I, I was, I had several babysitters. My mom raised me as a single parent, and so uh, she would go to work, and I stayed with different ladies, older ladies, and the story is told that on one occasion, I was about four or five years old, she walked into the den area, and I was standing on the coffee table just preaching away, (laughs) and I was disciplined old school style, if you know what I mean. But of these years that I have been preaching, I would guess that I have preached on Judas Iscariot less than ten times. There have been occasions along the way where I have started a series on the twelve disciples and through divine intervention, not my own choosing, but just the way things transpired, I never got around to preaching about Judas and that was fine with me. But whenever I commit to preaching on the 12 disciples, as we have done over the last several weeks, I always have to start with this message in mind. Before I preach on the very first disciple, I have to resolve in my heart that I am willing to address the person and the story of Judas Iscariot. It's, it's, it's like reading a classic, watching a movie that you've seen many times, and halfway through the reading or watching the movie, you have the, you have the sense and the feeling, oh, I wish somebody would re- rewrite this. I wish somebody would retell this story and make a different ending. How so much better it would be. 
Or, or maybe if you know the story of Judas Iscariot, you, you're like, as you study through the scripture, you're like the fellow who was watching a John Wayne movie with his friend. And as the movie started, he said to his friend, I'll bet you $10 that in the first 10 minutes of this movie, John Wayne falls off that horse. And his friend said, I'll take that bet. Sure enough, 10 minutes in the movie, John Wayne fell off the horse. Guy gets out his wallet, pays $10. After a few more minutes, the guy says, I'll bet you in the next 15 minutes, he falls off that horse again. He said, no way, no way, that's John Wayne. I'll take that bet. Sure enough, next 15 minutes, John Wayne falls off the horse again. The guy reaches in his wallet, pays him the $10. A little while passed, the guy says, uh, let, let me tell you something. I, I've got to confess to you, I've seen this movie. <laughs> I knew he was going to fall off the horse, and so that's why I made the bet. The guy said, keep the money. I've seen this movie too. <laughs> but I was certain by now he would have tamed that horse. It, it's not a good story, but it's sort of a applies here as you know the story of Judas Iscariot. This is the disciple who betrayed Jesus. He sold Jesus to the hands of the Roman authorities for 30 pieces of silver, the scripture says. And then later on, after the remorse would set in, he would take his own life. For years, I would focus on Judas and the ending, and I would ask myself, how in the world do I present this in a way that, well, has grace added to it? How do you tell the story of Judas that ends so bad in such tragedy? Then I realized that I was focusing on the wrong person. See, you study the lives of the 12 disciples and you go back and say, oh, I like that story about Matthew and I love the fact that he penned the first gospel and as you read it there, you can see a little more of his personality or maybe James and John who were fishermen. Jesus had dubbed them the sons of thunder, you remember, because of their spirit and their enthusiasm, their temper. We like their story. It's not stories about men, it's stories about Jesus. He's the common denominator between all of these men. And you have to see how Jesus and his interaction and involvement with them plays out to tell the story of redemption. That's the theme of the Bible. Start with this in mind. The name Judas for you and me has a bad connotation to it. In the Western world, we would identify it with names like Benedict Arnold or Edward Snowden. For those of you who are history buffs, our younger generation might remember the name of Edward Snowden. You remember that name? Even in our lifetime, he sold intelligence to the Russians. And so now that is still an issue in our day, and we're concerned about those who would betray their own country. Well, Judas is a story of one who betrayed Jesus, but in that day, his name meant praise. It was a good name, a wholesome name. And the inference there was this person, usually male children, who were given that name would grow up to praise the Almighty, who would honor Jehovah God, the God of the Old Testament. It's the only God they knew in that time. 
And so they somehow believed that that name was a good name. And in the Hebrew context, it was a good name. As a matter of fact, there are multiple men named Judas in the Bible. Did you know that? Jesus himself had a half-brother named Judas. Last Sunday, we looked at another disciple. He is known as Thaddeus and Labaius, as well as Judas. He had three names. I hope that was just obvious to you as I presented that sermon in first-person narrative, by the way. So there was another disciple named Judas. You go to the next to the last book of the New Testament, and there is the book of Jude, which is a variant form of Judas. Many people say that he was probably named Judas, but after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, he did not want to be associated with that name, and his name was changed from Judas to Jude. Many people, by the way, believe that that was also one of the half-brothers of Jesus because it is so closely positioned by the book of James in the New Testament, who was a half-brother of Jesus. More trivia here than you care to know, right? But it's all there. Jude, Acts 15, Judas, a prophet named Judas. So many men named Judas, and it was a good name. Now, having said that, remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus prayed all night before he chose the twelve. And so I think the question should be appropriately asked, who would betray him. Judas, that Judas was the one who would betray him. I think that's a good question, but I have no answer for you. I don't know the answer to that. But I am confident that Jesus knew the prophecy. I'm going to get to that in just a moment when we come to the upper room. But before we get to the upper room where we know that Judas went out, remember, in the middle of the meal and he met with the Roman officials so that they would again come to meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I want you to come back to this idea that Judas was a follower of Jesus. He, He saw Jesus perform the miracles. He heard Jesus when Jesus would preach to the public. He listened to Jesus as Jesus would teach the disciples privately. But somewhere along the way, his thoughts and his feelings seemingly began to change. Now the scripture gives us insight here, right here in John chapter 12, over an incident that took place in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you've never read John chapter 11, by the way, I strongly encourage you to do that. Do it this afternoon. It is the story of how Jesus goes back to his, you know, friends there in Bethany and he raises Lazarus from the dead. It is a very dramatic scene in Scripture. And after he raises Lazarus from the dead, it seems appropriate to Martha and Mary, let's feed Jesus. And so we come to chapter 12 and we see that they have prepared a meal for him. And and John is very careful to describe for us all the folks who were there. And listen how he says, and Lazarus was seated right there with him. Now I don't know if you you capture that, that excitement and that enthusiasm for a moment. But if you could, just imagine for your moment, here's the idea that someone who was dead 
and has now come back to life, you can touch him, you can speak to him, you can see that he is alive, he is eating, he is functioning as normal, and there is some enthusiasm in the house over the fact that they're going to have many more days with this loved one. Beautiful, beautiful thought and scene. As John paints the picture here of Jesus eating with the crowd and seated right there with him is Lazarus. And then John says, Mary did something. She went and took from her her own personal possession a box of perfume, pure nard as it's referred to. It would be the essence of a perfume that perfume is made from in our day. And it is estimated that if this box of pure nard still existed today and would be sold on the current market, it would be worth thousands of dollars. Maybe not just thousands, but tens of thousands of dollars today. And Mary does the unthinkable. She breaks the box and anoints Jesus. Now get the picture here. I mean, just, just immerse yourself in that scene. There is the aroma in the house already of the food and the bread. Oh, my stars, am I talking about food? On Sunday morning, how many Sundays do we do this, right? And you just smell the, oh, it is, it is savory. It is, everybody has, has just eaten and they are so satisfied there as they've shared in the meal together. And then all of a sudden, your senses are introduced to a totally new aroma. It is pleasant, but it is powerful. Because this is not just any ordinary fragrance. This is pure nard. This is the essence of the perfume, the substance that could have been watered down and multiplied many times over and gone much farther. Did something break? At that moment, and maybe somebody is asking, did somebody have an accident? Did something break? Was this on purpose? Watch this. And everyone's attention is given to Jesus. All eyes are upon Him as they realize what Mary has done in honor to Jesus, who has raised her brother from the dead. And as people are caught up in that moment and moved and touched by the emotion of one expressing such great gratitude, the scene is broken as one speaks and says, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she take what she had here that was so valuable and sell it and the money given to the poor. Now what is Judas doing? He's doing what we do so many times. It is the thought, in order for me to elevate myself, I must put somebody else down. I must make them look bad so that I can make myself look good. I must question her motives so that you can see I have good motives, right? That's what he's doing. Matthew's gospel says that a few other disciples sort of chimed in with him, nodded and said, you know, that's right, that's a good thought. I wonder why she didn't do that. Jesus said, leave her alone. Poor Mary. 
mean, another time she's serving and Martha comes to him and says, Lord, make her get up and serve everybody like I'm serving. Jesus was just teaching the crowd. And he said, she's chosen the better part. Oh, Mary, she can't catch a break. Jesus says, but she's preparing me for my burial. You're going to always have poor people. You won't always have me. So Jesus affirms what she's done as he accepts her expression of gratitude. But notice what John interjects here in the scripture as he says, Judas was not concerned about the poor. He just wanted the money because he was the treasurer of the group. Because he was pilfering. He was stealing from money that was collected for ministry and using it for his own personal desires, his own personal gains. John basically reveals the fact that Judas was embezzling the funds. You see, what I'm showing you here, ladies and gentlemen, is that there was a slippery slope and a decline. Maybe at one time Judas was committed to Jesus. Maybe he was sincere in his willingness to follow him. But over time, he began to question some things. And he began to do some things that were totally out of character for Jesus' followers and for certainly of what Jesus would have condoned and desired for those who followed him. Now I need to quickly let you know that there are two extreme views on Judas Iscariot. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a leader in the Methodist church, by the way, said that Judas was Satan incarnate. John 17, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. The son of perdition. Perdition is the idea that that which was Found is now lost. It's a castaway. It, it can no, no longer has value. It can no longer be used of value anymore. That's perdition. Satan incarnate, G. Campbell Morgan said. In other words, he, he was evil from the beginning. Well, a couple of thoughts here. Number one, Jesus never called him Satan. But he did call Simon Peter Satan. You remember? Matthew 16. Matthew 14, Jesus is walking on the water. Remember? Storm, they're in the boat. Jesus is coming to them. Simon Peter says, Lord, if that's you, let me come to you. Oh, jump on in, Rocky. So he steps out, he begins to sink. Jesus reaches out and saves him. They're back in the boat. And the Bible says in Matthew 14 that all who were in the boat began to worship Jesus as, listen to this now, the Son of God. Judas was there. Was Judas a part of that worship? Was it real? Was it sincere? Or was it fake? Was he just a charlatan at that moment? G. Campbell Morgan says... He was Satan incarnate. An Italian theologian of the 15th century said that Judas was a saint. He was not Satan incarnate. His desire was not necessarily to harm Jesus, although that was the ultimate outcome of his betrayal. His desire was to promote 
Jesus. Listen to this very carefully now. De Quincey says that Judas, as part of the zealot movement, won't go into detail about that, we've talked about it a couple of other Sundays, was always a desire that they would have a leader who would overthrow the Roman government. And as I presented last Sunday, the storyline of Thaddeus, who always wanted Jesus to reveal himself, reveal himself, and finally Jesus said, no, it's not my, my plan, my purpose. You have to reveal me for who I am. That was the storyline of Thaddeus. Judas wanted to put Jesus in a position where he could say to the world, this is who I am, and he would reveal to the world his ultimate power and overthrow the Roman government. And that's why Judas was so intertwined with the Roman officials. He wanted to put Jesus face to face with those who were in power and let Jesus show them that he truly could overtake them. De Quincey says he was a saint. G. Campbell Morgan says, no, he was Satan. I think both of these views are extremes. I think Judas was somewhere in between. And as Judas began to follow Jesus, whether he started it or whether he joined it, he was a part of the wrong crowd who began like Satan in the Garden of Eden to question the motives of others. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. When you do that and when you fall into that line, now, 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 now bear me out for just a moment. Granted, there are times when the evidence is plain and we need to call it for what it is and question the motives sometimes. But when you pull it out of the blue, when you in a conspiracy sort of way begin to whisper among those and just sort of paint a picture that casts somebody in a negative light, you yourself are on a slippery slope downhill, as was Judas. I think as a treasurer of the group, he became power hungry. He took advantage of the situation. That's an understatement. But there was a point in his life where we know that he was remorseful for what he'd done. As a result, he took his own life. That's what led him to do that. Think about it this way. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, right? Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about one of them is going to betray him. As they begin to talk amongst themselves, they said, who is it, who is it, who is it? And remember what Simon Peter said? Simon said, Lord... If they all betray you, I'll never betray you. And Jesus said, before the sun comes up tomorrow, you're going to deny knowing me three times. Remember? And as they're arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest, what did Jesus do? Upper room. Jesus took a towel and a basin of water and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now think about it. The Bible tells us that Jesus actually had a conversation with one of the disciples. It was Simon Peter, remember? Simon said, no, Lord, I'm not worthy. You can't do this. Remember what Jesus said? Simon, if you don't let me do this, you have no part with me. Remember, Jesus said, well, then give me a bath. Give me a shower. Wash all of me. I want to be clean all over.
Wonder what it was like when Jesus came to Judas. At this point, I think Jesus knew that Judas was the one. And I cannot help but believe in my heart of hearts as he was washed the dirty feet of Judas that there was a sense in which maybe he didn't say anything but he would look in the eyes of Judas and say, Judas, my love for you is unconditional. I can't love you any more than I already do. We, We need to put out a marker for that. Hold that thought. Jesus says to his disciples, it is he who dips in the sop with me. You know what the sop was? I can't imagine us putting a bowl on the table and saying to our guests, there's the sop bowl. That's a a term totally foreign to us. But it was the gravy bowl. It was was a condiment bowl. It, It had all the flavor in it. And so you would take your bread and you would dip it in the sop that was there. Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 41 that would predict the one who would betray Messiah. And there were other scriptures that were there. And as Jesus would know it would be Simon at that moment, the Bible says that Jesus would turn to him and say, what you must do, do quickly. And Judas got up and he went out. Listen to this. And the Bible says, and it was night. It's always night when you distance yourself from Jesus. It's always dark, always night. What do we make of this? I'm going to venture to say this, but I want you to understand that there is so much more depth to this theological understanding than what I can comprehend or what I am able to communicate this morning. But I want you to get this and I want you to understand this because there are people who actually believe that Judas Iscariot had no choice in this. It was predicted that he would do it and he had to do it. The problem with that is that that person takes a position of the sovereignty of God over the free will of man. The sovereignty of God, the idea that God is over all things, that God knows everything, which is absolutely a teaching of Scripture, totally overshadows the will of man, and the will of man is the free choice, the free will. There are those who say he didn't have any choice. God made him do it. Oh, my stars. I have a huge problem with that theologically and don't even think the Bible would teach that. The free will of man is the idea that we can choose to be obedient or disobedient to God. Now, does God know before the creation of all mankind whether or not we're going to be obedient or disobedient? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that God causes all things to happen. God allows things to happen that are outside His will. Because the measure of our obedience is our willingness to accept His will for our lives. I think Judas Iscariot had so far removed himself emotionally, psychologically, and certainly spiritually, he was willing to risk everything 
And that's why he betrayed Jesus. When you get to that point, ladies and gentlemen, you're in danger. When you lose your focus over Jesus being the most important presence in your life as it's revealed in John chapter 12, everybody else is focused on Jesus. Everybody else gets it. Jesus is deserving of this expression of gratitude. And yet Judah says, why did she do this? He breaks the mood. He breaks the moment. And he wants to question everything that has transpired. John says, not because he cared about the poor. He cared about himself. And that can happen with you and me. We become so focused on self that we forget to acknowledge the presence of the one who created us of the one who made us and brought us into this world. There's so much more I want to say here because you see, it affects our everyday living as we begin to walk through life day and day after day after day and we begin to think, oh, if only this, if only that and we get caught up in this what might have been, so forth. The challenge for you and me, ladies and gentlemen, is every single minute of the day to totally surrender our lives to Jesus and say, Lord, you're in control. May my life today bring honor to your name as I make good decisions. Every single day, that is the commitment we must make. Do you know how a caterpillar is formed? Anybody know that? Sure you do. A caterpillar just moving along and adding Seventh grade, eighth grade. It is the idea that a caterpillar just moving along and as nature would take its course, it attaches itself somewhere and spins a cocoon, remember? And as the cocoon is formed over time, the caterpillar sprouts wings. And as that cocoon falls away, then eventually the butterfly, you know, just comes to life. And, you know, it goes from a, a, a mully, grubby, revolting insect kind of thing, you know, to a beautiful butterfly with all those colorful patterns on its wings, and now we're captured by it and we're captivated by it. Did you know that at a point in time while that caterpillar is in the cocoon that a fly can come along and lay its eggs in that cocoon? And when the eggs of the fly hatch, they destroy the productivity of the wings. And the caterpillar is forced to live out its natural days and life as a worm. It could have been a beautiful butterfly, but because the fly came along and deposited those eggs, the eggs dwarfed, hindered, halted the production of the wings. Satan would love nothing more than to lay a few eggs, plant a few bad seeds, thoughts in your mind, in my mind, in my life, in your life that would prevent us from becoming who God wants us to become. Because there is one thing I am confident of. That he who began a good work in you wishes to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. That's from Philippians 1. I cannot say it enough. 
God loves every single one of us more than we could ever imagine. And if only we could see his desire to bring us into that relationship so that we may understand his love in a much greater way. That is my prayer for you. Would you stand with me this morning?